You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. The Constant is brought to you by Industrial Artifacts. I have a recurring daydream where I inexplicably discover an extra room behind the closet I'm recording in. It's my own personal office, and in my fantasies, it is glorious. There's a fine leather Regency armchair and ottoman for me to kick up on while I'm reading. There's a hundred-year-old pull-down map cabinet on the wall so I can stare purposelessly at the continental U.S. or Illinois circa 1908 and then do that thing where I let the map snap, roll up, and disappear the way I got in trouble for in elementary school. And center stage, there's the desk. An antique quarter-sawn oak draftsman's desk. Dark and woody and wonderful, with more than a dozen pull-out drawers for all my miscellaneous doodads and nonsense. In my dreams, it's perfect. And every last element can be found at Industrial Artifacts. They've got more than 20,000 square feet chalk-blocked with vintage lighting, seating, tables, advertising, and other found objects. Whether you're outfitting a hip new bar, searching for that fabulous kitchen table, or, sigh, building out your non-existent home office space, Industrial Artifacts has you covered. And right now, Industrial Artifacts is offering constant listeners 15% off their entire first order. Just enter coupon code THECONSTANT at checkout. Check out the link in the episode notes or go to industrialartifacts.net today. And remember to enter coupon code THECONSTANT, one word, to get 15% off your first order. One day, pull-down map. One day. It is a new century, the year of the first open-heart surgery, the first diesel ship. In Dearborn, Michigan, the Ford Motor Company is incorporated, while at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, Orville and Wilbur Wright make the first airplane fly. And in Russia, Konstantin Solkovsky is laying down a way to use rockets to travel to space. The year is 1903, and anything is possible. It's the age of the phonograph and the radio, the age of the blues and of ragtime. And more than anything else, it is the age of radiation. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode... Seeing is believing. It had begun with Victor Schumann, 
a pioneer of photography, who in 1893 discovered what would become known as ultraviolet radiation. Two years later, Wilhelm Röntgen was experimenting with sending electricity through near-vacuum tubes when he noticed a faint glow on a piece of cardboard that had been painted with barium cyanide a few feet from his experiment. It appeared that, somehow, some kind of energy was shooting out from his electrified Crookes tube. For the next few weeks, he investigated and experimented with this new phenomenon. He discovered that he could place a part of a body, in this case, say, his wife's hand, between the tube and the sheet, and it would project an image of her bones. In December of 1895, Röntgen made his discovery public, a new form of energy that he named for its mystery, the X-ray. In his papers, Röntgen detailed how one could produce an X-ray machine of their own, which scientists quickly followed because they were totally incredulous and wanted to prove Röntgen was full of it. But, lo and behold, when they tested out his ridiculous device, they saw it for themselves. X-rays, whatever they were, were real. And their discovery changed everything. The next year, 1896, the French physicist Henri Bacquerel heard about Röntgen's X-rays at a meeting of the French Academy of Sciences. Bacquerel had been studying phosphorescence and wondered if some of the materials he was working with, namely uranium, might be related to Röntgen's discovery. Bacquerel's initial hypothesis was that he could put some phosphorescent uranium salts out in the sun to absorb light, which it might then emit as X-rays. So he covered some photographic plates in black paper and put them outside with uranium crystals on top. The black paper blocked the sun from interacting with the plates, but when Bacquerel developed them, he could see the silhouettes of the crystals. Success! Bacquerel's first experiment seemed to confirm his, and this is very important, wrong idea. Uranium doesn't absorb sunlight, a thing we now confidently know, because after his first experimental success, it started raining in Paris. Bacquerel wanted to repeat his setup, but he couldn't as long as it was overcast and the clouds refused to part for days and days. So, while he waited for finer weather, he put his photographic plates in a drawer with his uranium crystals on top of them. On March 1st, he woke with the sun. The sun! Today was the day to confirm his results. Bacquerel rushed to his drawer, opened it up, and grabbed the plates and uranium. Then, he paused. It's not clear why. Maybe he was just curious, or he was running out of time to present results, but whatever the reason, he decided to develop the photographic plates even though the uranium hadn't been exposed to sunlight. And, wouldn't you know it, the crystals left on top of the plates for days and days left a very strong impression on the plates. The next day, Bacquerel announced to the French Academy that he had discovered that the uranium emitted energy without any sun. It was spontaneous, intrinsic. His lab assistant called it radiation. Her name was Marie Curie. Over the next few years, Curie and her husband Pierre discovered thorium, polonium, and radium, along with many important new facts. Curie figured out that radium could destroy cancerous tumor cells, for instance, and that the radiation was coming from within the atoms rather than an interaction of molecules. And so, 
also proved that atoms weren't irreducible, that they were made of some still smaller parts. Meanwhile, the English physicist Joseph John Thomson discovered electrons in 1897. In 1899, Ernest Rutherford and Paul Villard discovered alpha rays and beta waves. The next year, Paul found gamma rays on his own. And finally, in 1903, the year that Marie Curie, Pierre Curie, and Antoine Henri Bacquerel were awarded the Nobel Prize, Prosper René Blondelot made his great discovery. N-rays. Not that Blondelot was lacking in accomplishments. He spent most of his life in Nancy, France, where he was born, educated, and taught physics at the University of Nancy. He'd focused on electromagnetism, figured out the speed at which electricity moves through wires, the speed of radio waves, and at the turn of the century, he turned to working with X-rays. The question at play for Blondelot was whether X-rays were waves or particles. As it happens, they're both, but it's 1903, and we're still two years away from Einstein figuring that out. At the time, this was a really vexing question to scientists around the world, and Blondelot had just the pedigree and experience to figure it out. To do so, he aimed his X-ray machine at an electric field and put his X-ray detector off to the side. If X-rays were particles, they'd be absorbed by the field or bounce right off it and back at the machine. But if they were waves, they'd reflect all over the place, like throwing a rock in a still pond, and that refracted wave would hit the detector, illuminating the screen. Which is exactly what happened. With one simple but brilliant experiment, Blondelot had settled a decade-old mystery. X-rays were waves. Which, again, not quite, but mostly. Anyway, given what everybody at the time knew, it was a clever and quite conclusive trick. He could have called it a day right there. And why shouldn't he have? But for some unknown and unknowable reason, Blondelot decided to try a little variation before packing up. He removed the electric field and replaced it with a prism at which he aimed the X-ray generator, with the detector still off to the side. It was already well established that X-rays were unaffected by prisms. Shooting stuff at prisms was like step one for any scientist working at anything. What should have happened when Blondelot turned on the cathode tube and shot his X-rays was nothing. The rays ought to have passed straight through the prism to no effect. But that's not what Blondelot saw. When he flipped the switch, he saw, out of the corner of his eye, his detector lighting up. Just a little bit. Something was causing his detector to illuminate. But it couldn't be the X-rays. It had to be a kind of radiation that would be bent and refracted by the prism. The only hitch was, nobody had ever found anything like that. Until Blondelot. In March of 1903, a new discovery was revealed to the world. Everybody knew there was UV radiation, and everybody knew that there were alpha rays, and beta rays, and gamma rays, and X-rays. Now Blondelot had found the next new thing. N-rays, which he named for his beloved city. N-rays differed from their many radiating cousins in a number of respects. For one, as we already know, they could be bent by a prism, like visible light. But unlike light, they were stopped dead by water. Yet, they could pass right through other stuff that light couldn't, 
like rock or wood or some metals. But these were only the initial findings. Obviously, Blondelot turned all of his attention to studying the rays, and nearly every month he made some new revelation about their properties. It wasn't just him, though. The news that one of the most highly respected scientists in the world had made another radioactive epiphany, the seventh or eighth in as many years, caught fire, and soon experimenters all over were attempting their own X-ray experiments. Blondelot and his assistant were happy to help spread the gospel. As the months went by, they made a number of advances in their research that could help others advance their own. They looked for other sources of N-rays and quickly realized that N-rays were a lot simpler to come by than their X counterparts. Instead of vacuum tubes and high-voltage lines, it turned out that you could produce N-rays with nothing more than the sun and some pebbles. In 1896, Henri Bacquerel had figured out that uranium didn't absorb sunlight to produce its radiation. But in the spring of 1903, Blondelot saw that the sun could impart N-rays upon all kinds of humdrum materials. Leave a rock outside for the afternoon, and when you brought it into the lab, bam, N-rays. A month later, he realized it was even easier than that. In his testing of various materials for N-rays, he concluded that nearly anything that was compressed or stressed, like the spring in a watch or a tempered knife blade, exuded his new radiation. Another key finding was that you didn't need a fancy detector. Blondelot, do you mind if I call him Blondie for a little while? I'm just getting sick of death of saying his last name. And Prosper René isn't a great alternative. Blondie found that N-rays reacted with regular old calcium sulfide. All it took to detect them was a simple phosphorescent screen. Point some N-rays at it, and the screen would light up. Just look for yourself. Wait, wait, no, 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 not that way. It was very important. Blondie said, that you don't look at the screen head on. If you did that, you wouldn't see anything. No, you had to position yourself so that it was just on the periphery. And it had to be dark, very dark. He advised those attempting to measure the rays to first sit in a pitch black room for at least half an hour to give the eyes a chance to adjust. Then you could stare forward with your experiment in the corner of your eye where you would need to focus your attention without focusing your focus. Once you did that, if you did that, came the next step. Waiting. It sometimes would take a few minutes before you could make out the glow on the screen. It was very faint, you see. And given the circumstances of your viewing, it wasn't something you should expect to come easy. In fact, Blondie warned, some people might simply not ever have the acuity necessary to view N-rays at all. For some, they might simply never come. Yes, you're right. It's very suspicious. But the scientists following these elaborate developments had better N-ray detectors than bullshit detectors. There are a few reasons why. For one, Blondelot's reputation was sky high. He was known as a scrupulous, careful, and brilliant experimenter, and his work on electromagnetism had already nabbed him a couple of the highest prizes in physics. And, as I've tried to emphasize, there were just so many new discoveries in physics and chemistry going on. There was nothing outwardly incredible about one more. But the most important reason that scientists believe in Blondelot is more straightforward. They saw the N-rays for themselves. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. More than 100 researchers verified NRAs in scientific papers of their own. Aside from Blondie himself, the most prolific and pioneering of these was Augustin Charpentier, who was professor of biophysics at Blondlot's own University of Nancy. Charpentier's contributions to the scientific canon mostly related to optical illusions, an irony that you can probably already sense, but his work on NRAs was more revolutionary. In January of 1904, Charpentier published that he had discovered yet another new source of N-rays, the most important source of all, living matter. Frogs gave off N-rays, as did rabbits, as did, presumably, any living animal, especially people. Charpentier wrote that human muscles emitted N-rays and that the amount of radiation was directly proportional to the tension in them. Flex your bicep and the N-rays increased. Bend your finger before the phosphorescent screen and a viewer in the dark, out of the corner of their eye, might see the glow magnify. The month after publication of this explosive observation, the editorial board of The Lancet witnessed just such a bent finger in London and wrote that N-rays were the real deal, a sure thing. Now that it was known that N-rays ushered from and interacted with living tissue, the possibilities were endless. Only a month after Charpentier said that living bodies exude N-rays, the French neurologist Gilbert Ballet announced that he had seen specific N-ray patterns from patients that corresponded with their particular ailments. The idea that N-ray patterns could be used diagnostically to zero in on brain tumors or other conditions was considered very promising. Yet the most amazing medical possibility of N-rays came again from Blondlot himself. One day in the winter of 1904, he was sitting in the dark for the necessary half hour before he could set about his experiments. Bored, he took whatever bit of N-radioactive stuff he had in hand and waved it in front of his face. Then, suddenly, a miracle. He could see. He read the clock across the pitch-dark lab as if it were high noon. N-rays, he soon reported, could be applied to the eyes to temporarily increase vision. Charpentier not only verified this incredible result, he went further, showing that N-rays could also impart super hearing, super smell, even super taste. The hits just kept coming and coming. In total, more than 300 scientific papers were published on the subject of N-rays in less than two years, including one by a physician at Durham University who purported that he could make out the personality and temperament of a man by the pattern and color of his N-ray emissions. N-rays were shaping up to be the greatest discovery of the still new century, and their discoverer, Prosper René Blondin, the greatest scientist of the age. In August of 1904, he was awarded the LeConte Prize, the highest honor of the Academy of Sciences. Word on the street was that Blondlot's next stop would be a Nobel.
But not everybody was as happy about Blonde Lot and his new radiation. As the praise swelled and spread, the ranks of scientists who failed to see the rays did too. And they were getting louder. Lord Kelvin couldn't find them. And neither could William Crookes, the physicist who invented the vacuum tube that had made x-rays possible. Or Baron Rayleigh, for whom Rayleigh scattering and Rayleigh waves are named. Paul Langvin, a student and lover of Pierre and Marie Curie, respectively, and the inventor of ultrasound. Paul Drude, C.C. Schenck, Sidney Brown, A.A. Swinton. The company of Enray skeptics was maybe even more impressive than the believers. One of the most prominent was Heinrich Rubens a German physicist who was one of the most important figures in early infrared and radiation research. After Blonlot won the Leconte Prize, the Kaiser became fascinated by Enrays and ordered Rubens to devise a demonstration of the phenomenon for him and whatever guests he chose to bring along. But after a fortnight's effort, Rubens couldn't produce Enrays enough for a single person to view in controlled conditions, let alone a lecture hall filled with politicians and aristocrats. Embarrassed by the failure, Rubens came to Cambridge University for a meeting of the British Association of the Advancement of Science. There, he found good company, a clutch of like-minded chemists and physicists who all were growing increasingly dubious of NRAs. Eventually, Rubens turned to one of the other NRAs cynics, Robert W. Wood, and asked him to go to Nancy to see Blonlot and get to the bottom of the whole thing. Why me? asked Wood after some waffling and debating. Because you're an American, responded Rubens, and Americans can do anything. This episode of The Constant is brought to you by HelloFresh. HelloFresh delivers seasonal, simple recipes along with pre-measured ingredients right to your door every week. They do all the meal planning, shopping, and prepping so that you can just open up a special insulated box, read an easy, illustrated six-step menu, and prepare scrumptious meals for you and your family in 30 minutes or less with no more than two pots and pans and barely any cleanup. And oh God, I love it. Heather and I are always promising to cook more, but by the time we get home from work, we're often too tired to shop, too overwhelmed to plan, and too hungry to go into a grocery store without accidentally walking out with an industrial-sized box of goldfish and a gallon of tapioca pudding. But with HelloFresh, we're actually making food, and food that's worth eating as opposed to whatever atrocity I would no doubt cook up if left to my own devices. A couple of nights ago, I made zatar crushed grilled cheese with sumac roasted veggies over couscous. Don't wait to start HelloFresh a second longer. For $80 off your first month of HelloFresh, go to HelloFresh.com slash TheConstant80 and enter promo code TheConstant80. Again, that's HelloFresh.com slash TheConstant8080 and enter promo code TheConstant80 for $80 off of your first month. That's like getting eight free meals just for listening. And by BetterHelp. If you're struggling with any of life's many challenges, BetterHelp is available anytime, anywhere to give you a hand. They'll connect you with a professional counselor in a safe, private, online environment where you can get help on your own time, at your own pace, and through whatever means work best for you. Text, chat, phone, or video. BetterHelp has counselors that focus on any number of common issues, including depression, anxiety, grief, self-esteem, sleep problems, and relationship troubles. 
Your sessions are secure, convenient, professional, and best of all, affordable. Constant listeners get 10% off their first month with discount code THECONSTANT. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash theconstant. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash theconstant. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more, we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Robert W. Wood was many things. For one, as Rubens pointed out, an American. Born in Concord, Mass., he became interested in optics and vision after seeing the Northern Lights one night as a boy and found himself wondering what they were and how he saw them. He earned his first degree from Harvard, another from MIT, then another from the University of Chicago, and finally, a bit of study abroad at Berlin University under Rubens. At the time of the Enray Affair, he was professor of optical physics at Johns Hopkins. During his long and celebrated career, he made a great number of advances in UV light, spectroscopy, and phosphorescence. He discovered a spot of low albedo on the moon that's named for him, built the first liquid mirror telescope, produced the first ultraviolet and infrared photographs, and invented what we now call Wood's glass, a filter that blocks visible light but allows ultraviolet and infrared to pass through, i.e. a black light. There's so much more to his scientific contributions, but we've got to stop somewhere. Mostly because there's so much else to say about Robert Wood. He wasn't just a scientist. He was also a weirdo. He wrote sci-fi stories and children's books, including How to Tell the Birds from the Flowers, an illustrated rhyming book with a premise and context so complicated and convoluted that I'm ending this sentence right here. He was a prankster who used his expertise in optics to produce one of the world's first fake UFO photos. He was an adventurer who traveled the Trans-Siberian Railway even though it wasn't finished yet. He was known to be loud, gregarious, boorish, conniving, and brilliant. When Robert W. Wood came to Nancy in late September, Blonlot welcomed him happily and immediately began showing him his work. Wood, Blonlot, and his assistant sat in the dark for the requisite half hour, and then Blonlot showed him the most basic form of his N-ray demonstration. He was to look at the phosphorescent sheet, not like that, out of the corner of your eye, while Blonlot bombarded it with N-rays. As always, the glowing of the sheet was supposed to increase. But Wood couldn't see it. That was fine, though. Totally normal, Blonlot assured him. For some people, it took a lot of practice and time before their eyes were finally attuned enough to spot the difference. For some, that day never came. 
Well, maybe there was some other demonstration they could do to help show him the N-rays, Wood suggested. How about if Blonlot were to take his place, side-eyeing the screen, and Wood could move a lead sheet to intermittently block the N-rays from reaching it? Then, Blonlot could call out when and how the luminosity of the rays changed. When they tried this, Wood told Blonlot that he had scored very well. But silently, he noted just the opposite. Blonlot's observations of when the screen darkened and brightened bore no relationship to Wood's interference at all. Next, Blonlot said he would demonstrate the super sight that N-rays offered. In the dark, he said he could see the hands of the clock across the lab, if he just held an N-ray-laden metal file over his eyes for a few minutes first. Wood asked if he could hold the file for him, and Blonlot agreed. In the dark, Wood grabbed an ordinary ruler and put it in front of Blonlot's face. Yes, it worked, said Blonlot, 427 on the dot. Finally, Blonlot and his assistant led Wood over to their N-ray spectroscope, which contained an aluminum prism that would refract the rays into parts like an N-rainbow. With it, Blonlot announced a series of N-ray wavelengths to Wood. But Wood wondered whether he could repeat the spectroscopy again and get the same results. Sure is shooting, said Blonlot, and they reset the spectrometer for him to repeat the experiment. Sure enough, Blonlot took the measurements again, and they were identical to the first read. How could a skeptic explain that? Wood didn't have an answer. At least, not one he was prepared to give aloud to his fellow scientist. But he did know something. Something very important that he had hidden from Blondie and his apprentice. That he had removed the aluminum prism from the spectrometer before the second demonstration. There was nothing for Blondlot to be seeing at all. Wood was known for his jokes and his charm. And he was known to enjoy taking the wind out of the sails of hucksters and conmen. But he had no joy for what he had to report. He knew he'd be destroying the career and reputation of a man he held in high esteem. There was no getting around it, though. N-rays were fake. Blonlot was deluded. And Wood had the proof. The next day, he sent out a letter to the journal Nature detailing his evening with Blonlot. He left out the venerable scientist's name, only referring to his experience in one of the laboratories that was studying the effect. But it didn't matter. Everybody for whom knowing would matter knew. The N-gravy train came almost immediately to a screeching halt. No more papers, no more observations, no more prizes. By October, Everyone in the scientific world knew that N-rays were bunko. Everyone except Prosper René Blonlot. In 1905, a French scientific journal gave Blonlot one last chance. They offered to conduct an experiment for him to prove himself. Two wooden boxes, one with a piece of ordinary lead inside, and the other an N-ray-infused piece of steel. If Blonlot could identify with his tests which was which, he could show the world he was right. It took him almost a year to respond, and when he finally did, he declined. Wood's biographer, William Seabrook, wrote that Blonlot went insane after the fiasco and died within a few years. Other sources say he didn't just die, but did so by suicide. But the stories of his madness and death are as fallacious as his phenomenon. 
He stayed on at Nancy until 1910, when he retired at age 60. He lived on until he was 81. He was still coherent, still lucid, for decades after his days in the dark with his glowing screens. But his reputation was tanked. The embarrassment of the Enray affair was so massive that it even reached back into the past, tarnishing Blumlot's earlier and indisputable accomplishments. He could no longer be the genius who measured electricity and radio waves. He was only the fool who fell for Enray's. Maybe you're wondering just how this could have happened. And if you aren't, if you think you know, let me tell you now. No, you don't. You absolutely don't. Because nobody understands how the Enray scandal happened. Not fully, at least. There are a lot of constituent parts, but their precise proportions are impossible to say, as is whether they can add up to the whole. The Enray affair was the biggest blunder in modern scientific history, and I've read at least seven attempts to explain it, each as confident as it could possibly be, including one author who forcefully argues that Wood was a liar and that N-rays were never actually debunked at all. But while each holds a nugget of insight, none seems sufficient by themselves, and it's questionable whether even taken in their totality, they represent the whole story. Many seem to think Blomlot was insane, and plenty are willing to extend that into some sort of contagious hysteria, a mass conversion disorder that overbore the whole of the scientific world, and especially France, where most of the NRA papers were published. Speaking of France, a French scientific inferiority complex is also cited multiple times, along with a general failure in the French academic establishment. One factor in the debacle must almost certainly come down to Blonlot's insistence that the effect be observed peripherally. The corners of our vision are pocked with rounding errors and blind spots and other curiosities. Most of the rods in the eye, the things that process color and fine detail, are located in the center, with the black and white motion-sensitive cones dominating the edges. And the brain does a lot of fill-in-the-blanks with our peripheral vision, making up details based on best practices. That a faintly glowing screen, there in the dark, could seem to pulse or flicker from this perspective is anything but surprising. It's exactly the sort of optical illusion that Charpentier was famous for studying. And that illusion, combined with the low threshold Blondelot required to call something a success and the subjectivity of the observer writ large, may be enough to explain many of the results published by many of the researchers during the two-year-long Enray flurry. But none of it explains what got Blondelot going in the first place. What had initially sparked his interest and what had led him so quickly to his conclusion? And why had the world been so eager to believe and confirm him? Maybe it's as simple as remembering the time Blonlot conducted his first experiment. The year of the diesel ship. The year of open heart surgery. The year of Ford Motors. The year of the airplane. The year of 1903. When anything was possible. Music by Lee Rose Vare, Blue Dot Sessions, and Anime is Trash. Special thanks go out to all our new Patreon supporters, particularly the Parachuting Cats, Asher Rubin, Kimberly Sanders, Ryan Van Buskirk, Beth Yanni, David White, Jessamine Harris, J.S. Major, Sean Sinitsky, Mark Donovan, Kristen Fetchtel, and Ellen Chrysler. Thanks, Mom. I've got a new episode for the Secret Feed that I'm finishing production on as soon as I'm done with this. 
If you'd like to hear it, along with all the rest of the bonus material and supporting the future of this show, go to patreon.com slash the constant now and sign up. Every time, and this is as true as it is mortifying, every time I get a notification that someone has chosen to help support this show, my face gets all tingly. My eyes well up and I sigh wistfully towards a field of goldenrod that only exists within my imagination. So just know that you are causing that sickeningly sentimental reaction. N-rays were dumb, but at least nobody got hurt. Which is more than you can say for a lot of the other stuff people were doing with radiation at the beginning of last century. Next time, we'll talk about that. Until then, from Chicago, Illinois, home of Emil Grube, who, less than a year after Ronkin's discovery, used his very own x-ray machine to successfully treat a case of breast cancer in 1896 and began the field of radiology, this has been The Constant. <laughs>